Good morning. So good to see each one of you this morning. We're so glad you're here. Well, we're here to worship our God. And he is our king. And he's the king of glory. He's the one that is worthy of all our praise and honor. And we come into his presence this morning with reverence and bowing our knee and giving him the glory and honor that's due his name. Well, I invite you to stand and let's sing with enthusiasm this morning as we worship our God.
Say good morning to them, shake their hand, and then you can be seated. Good morning. You know, I saw this big thing floating down the river made out of gopher wood. Is that a sign that... Are you all tired of the rain? Yes. You know it's bad when Oregonians start saying, we're done with the rain. I have, I have not seen the river this high in a long, long time. It's amazing. But our God's amazing too, and He's doing amazing things in our lives, and some of the things that we want to bring to your attention, we're going to talk about in the end, but, but one of the amazing things is the ability to partner um, with families and raising kids. And in this season, we are celebrating our graduates. So we want to take a moment and recognize the graduates that, um, that are attending the youth group. They're going to have a luncheon after second service today, but we want to... Just acknowledge them and just pray specifically for not just ours that are here on this list, but others. Could you imagine being a high school graduate and, and coming out of high school into the world today? That's scary. I think I'd be going, okay, can you set up like 13th grade for me? I don't, don't make me go out there. 
So we want to recognize by name, and I don't know if some of them may be here, maybe not, but their names and their, their pictures are up there and in your bulletins. Please say hi to them. Let them know that you'd like to be able to honor them and just say thank you um, and, and just, just, you know, bless them. So we have Aiden Bake, uh, Becker, uh, Brianna Cox, Caitlin Johnson, Hannah Molden, Brianna Warnock, and Joshua Weiniger, and Rachel Freetag. They're all going to be graduating, but let's, let's pause for a moment. We're also going to have the ushers come forward for this morning's offerings, too, but it, so we're actually going to pray two prayers, but we definitely want to uh, pray for our graduates, and then we'll thank the Lord for the offering for this morning. But let's pray for those kids that are graduating. Father, we thank you for the privilege of partnering with you and raising the next generation as a church you've given to us the command to train up children that we're to speak of you in the in the sitting down and the rising up and in the in the day lord i pray for the parents of graduates even now in their transition from these kids that are going from high school and into college into careers not just for these that are that are part of our church but as a whole Lord, as they go from being coaches to consultants, may they speak your word in love and in truth. Father, I pray for these graduates. Lord, I pray a hedge of protection over their hearts and their minds, that they would have discernment. Holy Spirit, may you come upon them in a mighty way that they would discern truth over the deceptions of the world. That as they go into the colleges and into their careers, the, the social agendas and the lies of Satan would bounce off because they know the truth that is hidden in their heart. That as they grow old, they won't depart from these things. Father, we ask for blessings upon them. Good decision making. Provision. Lord, that as if you would tarry, they would be the next generation of the church. The next group of leaders and Sunday school teachers and missionaries and pastors and teachers. Father, we pray over these graduates. We pray blessings over them. As you have blessed us so much, Father, we thank you for the provisions in our lives. And as, as uh, the ushers collect this morning's offering, may the act of giving be joyful. May it be with great gratitude that we bring the first fruits of that which you've given to us. Lord, that your work would continue through this church into the missions and the ministries that are all part of it. And Lord, may you be honored. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been um, looking at the book of Acts for the last number of weeks, and we've been seeing how God has started the church, and we've seen many, many people come to the Lord in faith, and the church has added numbers to their uh, people to their numbers and, and to, the, to the life of the church. And this morning, as we get to our text this morning, we see where God is saying, Listen, I'm holy, and I want you to be holy as well. And it's important that you live for me. Allow my spirit to give you the power and help you live the life that I'm calling you to live. Take care of sin. Get rid of it. And so this morning, this song that we're going to sing this morning is a, is a prayer. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, change my heart, change my life. Help me be pure like you are.
living breath of God breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. Let's sing those words together. Make this your prayer this morning. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me.
God, as we look into your face, those last lines, we just stand in your presence amazed, in awe of who you are, what you do on a daily basis. Lord, as we look into your holiness, as we look into your beauty, God, we desire to be reflections of that. As you are holy, we desire to be holy. As we look into your words, we know that it begins, our holiness begins by being transformed by you, by looking to you and who you are and what you desire. God, may as we just prayed that prayer, may everything that you desire, may we desire and may we be pure as you are pure for the main purpose so that Christ in us would be seen by the world on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. As we take a look at our passage this morning, we're confronted with a very well-known account. Um, this account of Ananias and Sapphira. And as I was studying through this, I asked myself the question, what is one of the greatest dangers? What is one of the greatest dangers to the Christian witness? The one thing that will weaken the Christian testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ more than anything else. And that is hypocrisy. So where does this hypocrisy come from, this, this spiritual hypocrisy? It really comes from this element of selfishness. When we think about this hypocrisy, it really is more about what I want, the way I want it, regardless of, of how I should live. And as we just sang in the holiness of God, when we stand in the presence of the holiness of God, it reveals the hypocrisy in our life, doesn't it? It reveals the self-centeredness, the, the sin that drives us within us. Why is hypocrisy such a dangerous thing to the Christian witness? Well, it's very dangerous because this hypocrisy of self-centeredness, this selfishness, really flies in the face of the whole reason that we have a testimony that is the selfless act of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That God selflessly loved us. That He selflessly gave His Son as the sacrifice for our sins, the, the substitute for, for us. The death of Jesus was the most selfless act that could ever be done and then what we would do is call ourselves Christ followers and act selfishly now when people in the world look at us they have an expectation they have an expectation that we would if we're going to call ourselves Christians to act like Christ to live selflessly and when the Christian doesn't act selflessly but selfishly, then they label you as a, what? Hypocrite. And there is no worse description to apply to a Christian 
than hypocrite, than perhaps liar. Wow. Why liar? Well, liar is that you are seeking to deceive. Well, who's the father of deception? Satan. So then we are challenged with who we are living like. Who we are most like. Paul would warn Timothy regarding the hypocrisy that was going on in his day. And mind you, hypocrisy isn't something new to us. It's been around a really long time. But as he sent Timothy in to... uh, lead the elders of the church there in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Do we see that today? Absolutely. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Mm. Is that happening today? And by means of the, what? Hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Hypocrisy and lies will sear, the word is literally, to carterize your heart against the truth. Have you ever met somebody who was a liar that didn't realize they were a liar, that believed their lies so much that they thought that their lie was the truth? That's scary. That is scary. Or living in a hypocritical lifestyle that believes that their lifestyle is okay. Is that scary? Absolutely. And so as we take a look at the mirror of God's Word, we want to challenge our hearts. Thomas Fuller once said this, in quote, He does not believe who does not live according to his belief. In other words, I do not believe the one that does not live according to his belief. Our testimony needs to be true. Our witness needs to be in line with Scripture and God's Word and all of these things. John Bunyan describes the hypocrite as this. A saint abroad, a devil at home. What would it look like if God was to check out your behavior at home? And line it up with your behavior outside. Uh Uh-oh. Now we're getting personal. Hypocrisy reveals the liar. And the liar is one who undermines the witness of Christ. As we're going to take a look at in our account today. Peter and John, as we're picking up in this ongoing account, have been arrested for healing a lame man. At the gate, beautiful. You remember the account. If you've been with us for a few weeks... They got arrested. They got taken before the council. The council said, stop preaching that name and the resurrection of Jesus. Stop. And what did they say in all honesty? We cannot stop witnessing to that which we have seen. That was truth. In other words, you do what you got to do. Well, as a result of this, the church by this time, whether it was through Pentecost or through the preaching of Peter... We have seen up to 5,000 people coming to faith. That's an amazing amount of people that are coming to faith within this time. The church is growing. Satan didn't like that, so he tried the outward oppression of getting them arrested, the outward oppression of the guards and all of these people that are coming upon Peter and John say, well, we're going to scare you into being silent. Well, when that didn't work, when the outward oppression and the outward attacks does not work in trying to stop the preaching of the gospel, you know where Satan turns? 
inwardly. The inward corruption. If I can't coerce them to stop, then I will corrupt their testimony and disqualify them. So then people will not believe. And so the spiritual warfare turns internally to attack from within the church. To attack from within the church. Because if I can break up their unity, keep in mind they were all together as one as we're going to read. But if I can break up their unity, if I can implant somebody that is hypocritical and a liar that is within this and destroy the unity of the church from within, then perhaps I'll be successful. I can tell you out of the two, hypocrisy and liars from within the church create more catastrophe within the church than outward oppression. You can attack from without it, but it seems that the attacks from without, the oppression without, will solidify believers. But the internal disruption, that's what will break apart the church. Hence, we've seen so many church splits and so many different issues and falling from faith. And you think about how the testimony of the church has been so degraded by pastors and teachers and leaders who have fallen into immorality. What does the world think of when a pastor falls into immorality? He doesn't really believe what he is preaching. And if he doesn't believe it, then why should I? Within this. And Satan will exasperate that message within this. And so our our passage this morning reveals this danger of hypocrisy. We are all prone to it. Don't fool yourself. As we take a look at this passage, it is not what we would call an Uncle George sermon. You know what an Uncle George sermon is? I wish my Uncle George was here to hear this because he really needs to hear this. No. No, we need to take a look at the mirror of God's Word. Why? Because we need to guard our hearts. Our hearts against the hypocrisy and the lies that will destroy our testimony. We need to take out our trash first before we start messing with anybody else's. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through our passage this morning. Acts chapter 4, 32 to chapter 5, 11. And may the Holy Spirit bring out that, that mirror of God's holiness into our soul. It says this, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses or sell sell and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as he had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, by the apostles, which translates, means son of encouragement. And who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought it money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, there are some good butts and bad butts. This is a bad butt. <laughs> a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, 
Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who had heard of it. Well, the young men got up and covered him up and carried him out, and they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such price. And she said, well, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So we'll start with the good news. <laughs> and, and the good news really is that if there is an authentic witness, that authentic witness is going to be affirmed in unity and love. A way to know that your witness is authentic, that you're really living in a manner that reflects the love of God, is how you get along with people and how you're working with people. If I'm really living selflessly, it's going to be demonstrated by my actions and the things that were going on Within, the, within my life, the church was thriving under a powerful witness. It was thriving. It was growing. Why? Because it was the spirit of unity and the spirit of love, one for another. Without selfishness, they were, they were saying, look, at it. what I have is not really mine to begin with. It all belongs to, to God. Notice in verse 32, it says, The congregation of those who believed were one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed anything of their own. In other words, they were unified. In one thought, one affection, they were all together as one. And there wasn't about mine. And, and we see a similar condition in Acts chapter 2 after Peter's preaching. And the 3,000 got saved and they were all together. All the, the Christians that had come to faith at that time of Pentecost, they all had needs. Why? Because they needed to stay and learn for a period of time. So the church of Jerusalem had opened their doors to all the pilgrims that had all come into the Jerusalem area and were staying there. And it was just this big open house. Everybody had opened up everything they had. Why? Because the gospel was being preached, lives were being changed, and people's needs were being met within this. In fact... These are a couple of accounts where the church actually acts like a family. That's a powerful thought. That the body of Christ acted as a unified organism. As a family. That is there. There is an expectation that the body of Christ would act as a family. One heart and one soul. How do we know that? Because the believers had held everything that they had with an open hand. And those that were in the congregation of faith that were lacking were having their needs met. 
Now understand, it's in the context of those of their congregation of faith. They weren't trying to heal the social ills of all of the world, but those that were the believers that were coming in and that they were fellowshipping together. They were ministering one to another, a very interesting study, and I didn't do it, but I, I thought about it, and I think it would be a really cool study personally for you is to go through in the New Testament and find all the passages that are phrased one to another or one another. Because that phrase is a phrase of unity. They weren't claiming anything of their own. Now, this is not communism. It is not Christian communism. It is not the construct of everybody has the same level of economy and everybody lives the same. That is not the case. It is not an idea that they were starting their own commune, although many people have tried. It's not the saying, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, which is what communism really kind of boils down to. But it was saying, if there is a need and I have the means to meet that need, then I will not withhold what I have to give so that your need will be met. There's a big difference. Because what's mine is yours and yours is mine is this idea of this everything, we're holding everything in common. The other is, if I have the ability to meet a need that you have, I am not going to withhold that ability, but I'm going to give it freely. I see a need, I recognize a need, and I seek to meet the need because I have the resource by which to do that. That's selflessness. That is what Christ saw for us. God saw that we had a need. That we still do. Our sin separates us. Our need was for redemption. God had the power and the ability to meet that need and did not withhold anything back, but gave His Son to meet that need of sacrifice and redemption, to give His life and His righteousness on our behalf so that we would be made whole and that restoration of family would be once again completed, restored. That's power. When we think about that model, that truly is Christ-like living within this. Mind you, some people have tried to copy this idea. Greek philosophers like Pythagoras, you've heard of the Pythagorean, I can't even say it, the the Pythagorean theory and all the, the guy was a philosopher in Plato, but they all had this idea of this utopian world, this idea of this dream where where there would be this thing where everybody would be equal. What makes us equal is the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the being placed into the body of Christ, the being united by one Spirit, serving one God in one love and one faith. And it's that harmony of the Spirit that empowers us. What did it empower? It empowered the signs and the wonders of the church. Why was the church growing? Because they were of one mind and one soul, and the power of God was working through the apostles, signs and wonders, which was giving a platform for the preaching of the gospel. And the church was firing on all cylinders. 
and people were coming to faith. And it was great power and great testimony was taking place. Verse 33. What we see also there is this great power, but we also see great grace. The two phrases in there, great power and authority and great grace, is something that is all part of revival. And it's all part of a work of God's Spirit. And the church was growing, living selflessly, verses 34 and 35, providing for one another within this. Where did they get this idea? Well, they got the idea because, guess what? They're Jewish Christians. In the law, it says, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land with which the Lord our God is giving you as an inheritance in this possession. Whose idea is it to live selflessly? It's God's. And he put it into the law and he says, In Israel there are to be no poor. What does that mean? That means, I am giving you the land as an inheritance. I am giving you all of this provision. Your job is to manage the provisions that I give to you so there is no poor in the land. Why? So that all the nations around the land of Israel will look at Israel and go, why are they doing it right? Israel was to be the model of a selfless society that was living in the blessing and the provision of Yahweh God. Hence, it was to enhance the gospel message through the nation of Israel. Israel blew it. But these Jewish Christians go, no, we need to go back to what God has told us to do. So what is the foundation? Everything that God has blessed us with, we're to bless others. We're to hold it openly. If we see a need, then we're to meet that need. If Israel was to keep their commands, then God would continue to provide blessing. If Israel would keep the commands, it would be that witness of the world. And the New Testament church can be that. What would it be like if the New Testament church was to really live this principle out? There would be no need for government welfare systems. The church would be the provision for their own, and out of that abundance, then for others secondarily. And so within that, we see this solution to poverty within the body of Christ and the family of God. And by extension, meeting the needs of the world. When people have need in the world, there are two places they go to. They go to the government or they go to the church. Right? And it always seems like the government has a whole lot of hoops and lack of money. But what does the church have? Our congregation is blessed. You guys are phenomenal in responding to this. We have, a, we have a benevolence fund that is capable of meeting many, many, many needs. We, we service 18 different missionaries throughout the world. People call up and, and, and we need some money because of the, the people that are going to Ukraine, that are coming out of Ukraine, going into Romania, and so we can send out $10,000 to go out to help meet some of those needs. Where did we have it? It was already here. Why? Because our body of Christ here at WCF is providing. But who's really providing? God. 
as He puts it upon your heart to give. And those provisions are, are met. How are those provisions met? Well, we can see those provisions being met because just like the early church, they were taking and they were saying, we don't know where it needs to go or, or how to distribute this. So apostles, we're placing it at your feet and you take care of those needs. You be the administrators for that. Then the apostles who were aware of the needs then can appropriately distribute those resources out to the people of the need. So we see structure for the authority of the apostles and to be able to meet those needs. And that's a good thing. Why? Because it's Spirit-provided and Spirit-led to meet those needs. You've got to see the connection. Where's the connection? God moves on the individual's heart to give. Gives to the, the organization who are being led by the Spirit, that distributes to the need that is being revealed by the Spirit, and so the whole body works together. That's powerful. And the text says, and none that were needing had any lack within this. So, for an example, and you always want to be the good example, not the bad example. You want to be the good example. For an example, we've got this guy named Joseph. And you're saying, well, who's Joseph? I know Barnabas. I don't know Joseph. Well, his name is Joseph here in verses 36 to 37. And, and so Luke gives us this example, the good example, before he gives the bad example. And he says, Joseph, a Levite, or of the tribe of Levite, a Cyprian birth, who was also named Barnabas. Well, we know him as Barnabas, especially through the missionary acts of Paul within this. But his real name is Joseph. He was born in Cyprus. How did a Jew get into Cyprus? Well, during the Jewish dispersion of 330 B.C., when the, when the Jews were all scattered in an oppressive time, some of them landed in Cyprus. And he was of the Levite. And he had some land to be able to sell. And you say, well, I thought Levites weren't supposed to have land. Well, they weren't originally, but over time they were allowed to have some land. Apparently he had some land in the Jerusalem area. And he was back in Jerusalem during the Pentecost time, God moved on his heart to take that land, to sell that parcel of land that he had in that area, and then bring it to the disciples' feet. His nickname, Barnabas. Well, Eusebius says that this Barnabas was one of the original 70 followers of Jesus um, in, in that discipleship that was going on. But really, the, the name, Son of Encouragement, is a very cool name. The son of encouragement, Periclesis, would be the, the son of the Periclesis or the encourager. When Jesus left, he says, I go and I will send back to you an encourager, a Periclete. One who brings encouragement. And who is that? The Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit that is, that is present in you is here to encourage you, to guide you, direct you? You want to know what to do? Before you do something, pray. God, what do you want me to do? Show me. Holy Spirit, lead me. Well, apparently the Holy Spirit led Barnabas to sell some land. Mind you, all of these people, and we don't read in the text where it was mandatory. It was all voluntary. 
nothing says that, well, the apostles mandated that you had to give one-tenth or you had to give all your excess to in order to meet. The, no, it was all voluntary. What a powerful testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit moving in people's lives to be able to meet the needs of others. You become a conduit of blessing towards other people in ways that you can't even imagine. And how are you doing it? You're taking the very resources that God has provided for you and you're allowing those resources to flow through you to meet the needs of other people within that. And so Barnabas, he is celebrated in an ongoing celebration. Barnabas was really a cool guy. Barnabas was, when Paul first became an apostle, when he first was called into following after Jesus, nobody wanted anything to do with him. Probably a pretty wise bet. Why? Because Paul, previously Saul, was killing Christians. Nobody trusted the guy. And the first one that would stand behind him was who? Barnabas. You want this guy. You want this guy in your corner. He was the encourager. And he was genuine and he was transparent. And he was encouraging others with his faith and testimony of what God has done. And he's an amazing example of being that conduit blessing. But in chapter 5-1, we have that word there. But. Here's the bad example. The bad example comes from, I believe, a demonic influence, as the text tells us. Because Satan wants to destroy the believer's witness through lies and hypocrisy. Your greatest enemy is not the world system, although the world system is an enemy. Your greatest enemy is not your flesh. We can put that to death by the power of God. Your greatest enemy is the devil. Why? Because he wants to use you as a way to destroy other people. That to me is, is horrendous. When we see this. And he wants to destroy the church from within. And the believers witness through this, this hypocrisy. And so Satan fills the heart of Anna since Sapphira verses 1 and 2. He had this wife and they kept back some of the property. And his wife full knowledge bring in the portion of the this apostles feet. But Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart? They saw what Barnabas was doing. And the others. And they said, you know what? We want some of that fame and some of that. We want some of that attaboys. We want our names put up. We want to be seen. So we've got some property we can let go of. Let's let go of some of this property. So Ananias goes to his wife. You know, I, I want to be on the in crowd. So let's go ahead and let's do this so everybody can see this and we'll do this. But I'm not, I'm not really wanting to give all of it. I'm going to keep back some of it for us. Was there a problem with that? Was there a problem in, in selling something, keeping back a portion for yourself, and then giving the rest? Is that really the issue? Or is it the pretense, the presentation, the motivation? When we take a look at this, they both own the land. It was a voluntary action that was in this. But we know that the pretense was to sell it with the intention to give the appearance of sacrifice. 
The pretense was to sell it with, to give the appearance of this great selfless act. Meanwhile, they're conceal, concealing selfishness within that. To be able to be seen and acknowledged for this great work, this public recognition, where does that come from? Pride. Pride. Because they wanted to make it all about them. You know, I was thinking about this phrase where it says, he kept back. The same phrase, the exact same phrase is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, of the Old Testament, probably more than you wanted to know. But it's the same exact phrase that is used one other time in the account of Achan. In Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 26, we have the same event that is happening similarly in Israel at that time. Remember, they come into the land. God says, I'm going to give you Jericho. March seven times, go around, right? Then the walls come down. We all know the account. But God said, do not take any of the spoils of the land because that le- the spoils of Jericho are dedicated unto me. First fruits. It was the first city that Israel was conquering in the, in the land of Canaan. And that first fruit of that was to be to them, or to God. God says, it all belongs to me. Because why? God gets the first. He was setting down a present. Did he need it? No. It was a lesson. But this guy, Achan, decided to keep a portion for himself. And then when you read in Joshua chapter 7, they go to fight Ai, which was this little know-nothing of a town. They go to fight Ai and they get their lunch handed to them. They get whooped. Joshua's, Lord, what? What was that about? He says there's sin in the camp. And as you read through the account, they go through the whole thing and they start casting lots, trying to find out who it was. Who was it? Where, who did this sin? And it comes upon Achan, who had hid some of the, the, the monies that were taken in Jericho. He had hid them in his tent. And he brought sin into the camp in his hypocrisy and his selfishness. People died because of that. So what ended up happening? Achan, his wife, his kids, and all of Achan's possessions were all burned and destroyed and buried with a heap. Why? Because the new work of God was being undermined by selfishness. The church here is a new work of God and is being undermined by selfishness. And it can't be tolerated at all. Say, okay, how does Jesus really feel about hypocrisy? Well, Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 30 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of what? Dead man's bones. I love that. And all all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the false prophets. And that was a lie. You're a hypocrite. There is no toleration in the kingdom of God for hypocrites at all. That's why we have to be on guard against hypocrisy, even personal hypocrisy. Can each one of us fall under that category? Can we become hypocrites? 
Absolutely. It's very dangerous. And it's so dangerous it can infect us and we don't even know we're doing it. So Peter confronts and he puts hypocrisy on trial. Notice what he says to Annas. He says, but Annas, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back some of the price while it remained unsold? Didn't it wasn't your own? In other words, first of all, we understand the motivation. The Spirit had been, and it's interesting because you, you see the Holy Spirit filling the hearts of the believers. But here, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? It's a phrase that talk about the influence. It's the same kind of influence that was used uh, with Judas in Luke chapter 22, 47, 48. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and, and called Judas, one of the twelve preceding him, and approached him and said, gave him a kiss. So Judas, you're betraying your, your son of man with a kiss. Why? Chapter 22, verse 3. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Satan got a foothold. And entered into that heart. That demonic influence of self-centeredness and selfishness was impacting him. And, and Peter says, why? Rhetorical question, why? Why did you allow this? There's a lot of people that will go into this whole big long debate. Was Ananias and Sapphira saved? And if they were saved, then how did the Holy Spirit come in? And how did they do all... You know what? Don't get lost in the weeds. The reality is this. Ananias and Sapphira and Judas all had a choice. They allowed that to take place. They acted upon that temptation. They were not demonically possessed and had no control. They had very much control about what they did. But they allowed that demonic influence to influence them to sin, to live hypocrisy. We know that hypocrisy will be judged by God. In Luke 17, 1 and 2, Jesus said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. I love that phrase because it says, Carrie, you will screw up. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him as a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. What's the difference? The difference is, is when I screw up, i got to immediately acknowledge my sin, confess it, and repent from it. When Peter said to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart to do this, why did you do this? We don't see any conversation of confession, repentance, do we? We don't see any of that. He holds to that. And there is great judgment within that. He lied to the Holy Spirit. I think there, this gives power to Peter's phrase in 1 Peter 4.17 when he writes to the church. He says, For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Judgment should begin in the household of God. What would it be like if God was to judge hypocrisy right now in this room? It's a scary thing to stand before a holy God. We should examine our hearts daily and ask the Holy Spirit to see if there's any wicked way in me. When it's revealed to us, we need to acknowledge it and repent it from it. We need to get into that place 
where we understand that God will judge sin. Question, does God have the divine prerogative to judge sin? Yes. Does God have the divine prerogative for capital judgment against sin? Yes. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has the divine prerogative. And can capital punishment be used as a deterrent to teach people not to sin? The answer is yes. God does it. We should learn from it. So, Ananias, upon hearing these words, in an unrepentant state, lying to the Holy Spirit, drops dead. My charismatic brothers and sisters would use this phrase, slain in the Spirit. They use it the wrong way. You don't want to be slain in the Spirit. He dropped dead, breathed his last within this. His life was taken. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. His wife, probably looking for her husband, where's, where's Ananias, comes in, doesn't know what's going on. Peter asks her the question. Now again, here you can see God's grace where Peter asks her the question. He says, Sapphira, you know the land that you sold, did you sell it for such and such? Now, here is a rule of thumb that all parents know that kids don't know. If I'm asking the question, I already know the... Powerful. Did you sell it for such and such? And here's the, here's the self-deception. Yeah, we did. Why? Because they agreed to stick to their story. You know, when we get into that, that case, she sticks to her story. She did not ask truthfully. She incriminated herself. Yes, this was the price. And he says to Sapphira, he says, the feet, uh, can you imagine hearing this? The feet that carried out your husband are at the door here for you. Whoa. <laughs> How do I walk this one back in 30 seconds? You can't. The judgment of God is done within this. I often wonder, Ananias and Sapphira, as they experience all of hell and everything that's with it, was it really worth it? Was it, was it really worth it to lose all of this? We think about this, and he uses this phrase, how is it that you thought it was okay to test the Holy Spirit? This word, this phrase, testing the Holy Spirit, we find it in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.16, where he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him in Massa. Jesus against Satan in Matthew 4.7 says this, Jesus says, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What does he mean? Do you know what the test in the testing the Holy Spirit means? In the context, it says, how far can I go before God's going to do something? How far in this sin can I go before judgment happens? The kids do it all the time, right? Kids do it all the time. You think about it, you say, don't touch that. What do the kids do? They look at you while they're reaching out. 
right? They're waiting. How far can I go before? How many times should you have to tell your kids to do something? How many times do you normally have to tell your kids to do something? Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Right? I got this new puppy driving me nuts. Praise God for the patience of my wife. Otherwise, the power of the Holy Spirit might come upon that puppy all at one time. (laughs) Why is it that we as humans put God to the test? How far can I go, God, before you are going to act? God, do you really mean what you say? Did you really mean what you say? Do I really believe that the wages of sin is death. I can tell you this. It is a fearful thing to come into the hands of a holy God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We have lost that. The capital punishment that God exhibited here with Ananias and Sapphira was not going to be something that was ongoing. But it was to set a precedence that God was not going to tolerate sin even in the early church within this. Proverbs 9, 10, and 12 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, wisdom... Your days will be multiplied and the years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. My challenge to you this morning is this. Are you guarding your heart against hypocrisy and lies? Do you really look at your life in light of the holiness of God and say, not measuring up? We need, as they would say in the modern term, we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Because God is a just and a holy and righteous God. This world system is falling apart. This world system is testing God. And it will be judged. Praise God that through Christ... We've been given that freedom because Jesus took that judgment for us. But I can tell you this, don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. We need to be in that place where we are judging ourselves so that God doesn't have to judge us. We need to guard our hearts against the hypocrisy and lies so that we don't destroy the witness of God. I don't ever want to be the reason Why somebody turns away. Because of my personal hypocrisy. They may not like me personally. But I don't want to be the reason why somebody turns away from God. Because of a hypocrisy or a lie within my life. Let's pray. God, we pray that this morning. That you would check our hearts. That you would look at us and see if there's any wicked way in us. Father, we want to be more like Barnabas, encouragers. We want to be more like the early church. One mind and one soul being led by you, Holy Spirit, to meet the needs of others. 
God, we want to be like that church that has a powerful testimony that thousands of people are coming to faith because of the testimony of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection to give life. But Lord, we know that we are in a human flesh. And there are times in our lives when this flesh gets a hold of us and guides us in a direction we shouldn't go. Holy Spirit, I pray you would check our hearts even now. Reveal any wicked way in us that we might walk in the ways of everlasting, that people would see your work in our lives. Know you, Jesus. During this last song, make this song a a prayer of confession, examination. If the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, do business with God. Spirit, we pray that you would do that work within our lives, that we would listen to your prompting, respond to your correction, confess that sin, and be set free. May our witness be true, our testimony be powerful, 
that by which people would see the resurrected Lord Jesus and the power of salvation. God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in this place. With that, let me pray us out. God, I thank you for the privilege and power that you've given to us to be called children of the Most High, the opportunity to be cleansed from sin, that the wage of sin that was death was paid by you, Lord Jesus, and we've been given that free gift of eternal life. May we live in a manner that honors that gift. May we live in a way that, that brings forth uh, that peace to all people that would ask. And our world needs that peace. And most importantly, God, as we go out today, may everything we say and do make you smile. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.